This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our season sponsors, the Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, U.S., and London stock exchanges. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to open your account today. This episode is also sponsored by Two Nice Jewish Boys. Two Nice Jewish Boys is an Israeli podcast in English, hosted by Naor Meninger and Eitan Weinstein. Each week they feature incredible guests and have fascinating conversations. Just recently, for instance, they hosted Itai Engel, an award-winning war journalist who has reported from Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He shared some of his most riveting tales, including ones of his time with James Foley in Syria. You can subscribe to the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, at 2NJB.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, to our episode. Germany invades Poland and the free state of Danzig. The efforts and hopes of diplomats for peaceful settlement are transformed into the roar of gunfire. Warsaw is bombed, blasted and shelled. Poland is in ruin. Last month, the world marked the 80th anniversary of Hitler's invasion of Poland. Great Britain and France declare war on Germany. And the start of the Second World War. In Israel too, of course, this was a big milestone. Kids discussed it at school. Academics held symposiums and conferences at the various universities. Newspapers ran articles and editorials. But, as we all know, this wasn't always the case in Israel. For many years, the war and the Holocaust were taboo topics. Now, close your eyes and imagine Israel in the late 1940s or throughout the 50s. It's a young country trying to construct a vibrant national ethos, one of strength and resilience and vitality, one that celebrates the farmer and the kibbutznik, and the young fighters that, against all odds, won the war of independence and turned the dream of a state into a reality. In that Israel, there was little room for the Holocaust. It was shameful and rarely discussed publicly. Ora Rajevsky, from Kibbutz Afikim, near the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee, remembers the haunted Holocaust survivors who showed up shortly after the end of the war. Ora, can you please uh, introduce yourself? My name is Ora Rajevsky. My maiden name is Galili, which I changed from Hebrew to Polish. <laughs> and I was born in Kibbutz Afikim. What year were you born? When? when? Yeah. 1927. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but Ora and her friends, all strapping, idealistic tzabarim, men and women of the land, were off fighting for the state to be. In the Palmajo, in the Haganah, 
So we, actually we didn't stay here. So we didn't know them because they had their own life. Even when the Palmachniks were around, they didn't really interact all that much with the Holocaust survivors. Their experiences, their pasts, were so wildly different. We didn't ask and they didn't want to tell. And that was pretty indicative of the general attitude. European Jews, many Israelis felt, had gone to the camps like sheep to the slaughter, tzon latevach, without really resisting, without putting up much of a fight. But then, almost overnight, that perception started to change. And it changed because of one major event. On May 23, 1960, as most of the citizens of the young country were waking up from their afternoon naps, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion made a dramatic announcement in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. A while back, he told the nation, the Israeli security services discovered one of the greatest Nazi war criminals alive. Adolf Eichmann. Along with other Nazi leaders, Eichmann was responsible for what they called the final solution for the Jewish problem, the extermination of six million European Jews. Ben-Gurion then paused for a second and delivered the bombshell. Adolf Eichmann, he said with restrained excitement, is now in custody in Israel, and will soon stand trial in Jerusalem. We all know about the Eichmann trial. You can probably even conjure up the famous image of a balding, middle-aged man, responsible for the deaths of millions of Jews, sitting inside a glass booth in the Jerusalem courtroom. Many of us have learned about the trial in school, watched documentaries about it on Holocaust Remembrance Day, or read Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And just in case none of this sounds familiar, the Israeli National Archives and a bunch of other organizations have made sure it's at the tip of our fingers. A few years ago, they uploaded videos of the entire trial to YouTube. We'll link to it on our site, israelstory.org. And during Eichmann's trial, people came forward and recounted the horrors they had experienced in the camps. The trial opened up the floodgates and allowed for a kind of national catharsis. At its end, of course, Eichmann was sentenced to death. He is, till this day, the last person to be legally executed in Israel. And even more than that, he's become a symbol. A symbol of evil. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today, The Needle. It's a collaboration with a wonderful national public radio podcast called Rough Translation. They bring fascinating stories from far-off places, all the way from Brazil to China. They've told stories about Iraqi citizens rebuilding after ISIS, evangelical Christians confronting climate change, 
a beloved McDonald's franchise in France, and many, many others. And what's stirring about those stories is that they bring new perspectives on familiar conversations. The stories are so universal that no matter where you live, you end up thinking of your own backyard, of your own life. And in this episode, two masters of radio, Rough Translation's host Gregory Warner and NPR's Jerusalem bureau chief, Daniel Estrin, bring us a little-known backstory of one of the best-known Israeli Mossad operations, the capture of Adolf Eichmann. But as you'll hear, this story goes somewhere you'll never expect. Now, long-term listeners might recall that in our second season, we aired a story in which we went back and interviewed many of the folks who dealt with Eichmann while he was on trial. People who guarded him, people who interrogated him, even the people who executed him. And don't worry, you don't have to go searching for that episode. We'll drop a rerun in our feed next week. But that story was all about people who very much wanted their name to be part of the Eichmann saga. And this one, well, it's strange. It's about someone who did everything he possibly could to erase himself from the history books to minimize his part in the capture of one of the most notorious Nazi war criminals. Here are Gregory and Daniel. The Mossad is the Israeli version of the CIA. Think top-secret spies, agents who deny they work there. So I was surprised to learn that there has been a tradition where one day a year, the Mossad throws open its doors to the families of the employees. And the kids used to come. Wait, the Mossad has take your son or daughter to work day? Yeah, why not? Avner Abraham is a former Mossad agent with a passion for history. He would set up these elaborate exhibits for the kids with, say, a typewriter from the 50s that typed in Morse code or old spy gear. Like you have television, but inside you can find camera. I think that old objects uh, got energy. One day, a top guy told him he had something to show him in a refrigerated archive in the Mossad basement. It was in the corner. Ten boxes of stuff, all from one old operation. It looks like someone said, OK, let's put everything in boxes and put it in the corner and don't touch it for 50 years. Avner finds an old Leica camera a kit to make fake license plates, a pocket diary in code. I remember that I opened one of the envelopes, a brown envelope, and I saw all these Israeli passports from the 50s. Israeli passports from the 50s had blue cloth and gold letters. He opens one of them. The name is in Hebrew. Ze'ev Zichroni. If you translate, Ze'ev is wolf, and Zichroni is memory. The wolf of my memory. It's a code name. The picture on the passport is Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was Hitler's mastermind of transportation. He made sure the trains to the death camps ran smoothly. And after the war, he escaped to Argentina until he was captured by the Mossad and brought to Israel. And his trial in Jerusalem in 1961 was broadcast all around the world. When I stand before you, judges of Israel... People crowded around their radios and TVs. To accuse Adolf Eichmann. More than 100 Holocaust survivors took the stand to tell their stories. I do not stand alone. At the time, most people had never heard these stories in public. And in Israel, which was full of refugees, telling these stories was taboo. They didn't fit with Israel's self-image of resistance and strength. 
The survivors were seen as victims. They were called lambs to the slaughter. And lambs don't speak. The Eichmann trial became the setting to flip that script. Victims became prosecutors of the Nazi in the dock. Here with me at this moment stand six million prosecutors. The Eichmann trial gave Israel a new story to tell about a nation that had suffered a wrong and was ready and able to exact justice. And it created the legend of the Mossad, this young spy agency from a tiny new country that discovered Eichmann was hiding under a false name in Argentina, then tracked him, staked him out in his home, kidnapped him, sedated him, dressed him in a flight crew uniform, and snuck him onto a plane to Israel with Argentine authorities none the wiser. This is the capture story that would be told and retold in books and documentaries and feature films and taught in Israeli high schools. And the agents became national heroes with books and memoirs of their own. That's the story that Avner found in these basement boxes. And he's asked to make a show for the public, the first museum exhibit by the Mossad about itself, some Mossad PR at a moment when the Mossad is being especially criticized for secret assassinations. And his exhibit, it's a hit. It goes up in Jerusalem and then Tel Aviv, and then they're invited to Cleveland, and then Skokie, Illinois, and New York City, and Florida, and New Orleans, and everywhere he goes, this odd thing happens. He's approached by people who say, you forgot to include my dad. Why didn't you write the name of my father? All the years he, he used to say that he was one of the people that captured Eichmann. We know he took part, he was there, he was in the car. One guy's dad booked hotel rooms for the agents. Someone's mom had a backup safe house. A guy in New York had the job of going to the post office each day to take all the mail from the Argentine sources and put it in a new envelope for Tel Aviv. It's amazing. All the time. There's someone in the audience that have a connection. Everyone wanted a piece of this story. Everyone that is except one person who was closer to the heart of this capture than anybody else. And yet, he did not want any part of this story. My father didn't want to talk about anything. And his kids would spend years asking themselves, why? Arguing about it. And some of those arguments revolved around just one object, an object that Avner, the Mossad curator, was trying to hunt down. This mission to bring the needle. Our story is about the doctor who injected the sedative into Eichmann's arm and then accompanied him through the airport in Buenos Aires, both men dressed in flight crew uniforms with starched white shirts, blue trousers, stars of David on their caps. This was, in a sense, the trickiest part because they had to pass Eichmann off to airport authorities as just a member of the crew who was feeling sick. That's why the doctor was with him. He needed to, need to keep him like a puppet. What does that mean, like a puppet? Like... He's not sleeping. He cannot speak. He cannot uh, scream. He cannot... He looks very sick. And in 1960, with the anesthetics of that time, was that difficult to do? To put him in exactly that twilight? That's why he was a professional. His colleagues considered him this magician. He was a legend in his field. Daniel Estrin, Jerusalem correspondent for NPR, has been digging into the doctor's story. He was the anesthesiologist who would be called upon whenever a baby, uh, even a preemie, needed to be operated on. 
The doctor died some years ago, but I know he would not have talked to me anyway. He probably would have shut me out, as he did everyone who wanted to hear his story. So I ended up meeting with his son Danny in a noisy Tel Aviv cafe. Danny spent his life trying to figure out his father's mystery. Danny's a trim guy in his 60s. He's got two kids. He's a cardiologist. Like his dad, he loves the artifacts of his profession. Uh, he actually has a collection of heart stents he's removed from patients' bodies and mounted. Um, he calls it the world's largest collection. The hospital where he works is the same one where his dad was the director of the anesthesiology department. They call him Elian Number 2. Elian the second. I mean, it's really funny. I'm 31 years in the hospital. I'm still considered the son of Dr. Elian here. As a kid, Danny remembers his father being gone a lot. He was always on call, traveling to different hospitals around Israel. But one of those trips, Danny remembers when he was eight years old. He woke me up early in the morning. I was a little kid and sort of kissed me goodbye. Um, and he told me he was going to Eilat. Eilat is about four hours south of Tel Aviv. But he was gone for weeks. And I have this really strong memory. Uh, when he came back, he gave me a pistol. A toy pistol. And the butt of the pistol was from uh, ivory. And I was like, wow, they have such beautiful things in Eilat. I was, I was shocked. Yeah. Right. My brother remembers the pistol, yeah. And I remember getting a doll. Danny has a twin sister named Miri, Miri Halpern Verney. And she also remembers this trip, and she remembers the gifts. What was the doll that you remember? Just a, a doll that the girl likes. I didn't have many dolls. Miri, as a kid, was more into soccer than dolls. But even she had the same reaction as her brother. Like, wow, you can buy such beautiful things in Israel? In Israel, 50 years ago, you could not get uh, things so easily like you get now. So these were very small signs that something maybe not usual is, is going on. You mean that there may be more to your father than you realize? Yeah. They didn't even know which country those gifts had come from until they were teenagers in high school. And Danny was hanging out with some friends, and they're talking about the Eichmann capture. I mean, a group of friends were kind of talking and something about Eichmann, and uh, one of them turned to me and said, maybe this is your father who's the doctor involved. Danny had no clue what this kid was talking about. Had one of his father's long trips been for the Mossad to sedate and kidnap a well-known Nazi? Danny gets home from school, and he asks his dad, Dad, did you... Eichmann, did you do that? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In his very sort of typical, nonchalant way, he, you know, kind of acknowledged it and just moved on. Repeatedly we asked and he didn't want to share any information. He said, it's my right not to say anything to anybody. This silence provoked almost opposite reactions in his two children, the twins. While her brother went to med school and became Elian number two, Miri left Israel, and she stopped asking her dad questions. He was not a storyteller at all. He was, he was very quiet. I don't like the limelight either. He just didn't like Some people like it, he doesn't. He didn't. Why? He must have had his reasons. Miri says in Israel, where military service is mandatory, many people have done things that they just can't talk about in public. In Israel, everybody's involved in these things, in the Mossad. Everybody has kind of secret activities. It's not that unusual. What do you mean everybody's involved in the Mossad? Many people are involved in the Mossad in Israel. Did you work for the Mossad? No, and if I would, I wouldn't tell you. 
Unlike his sister, Danny was not the type to let secrets lie. Many times I asked him, Abba, why won't you talk about this? What's so secret? Everybody knows about it, so what, what's the big deal? His father did eventually give him one answer. He would talk about that as a doctor, he didn't feel quite right about using his knowledge, his power, against somebody's will. It's against the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath. The pledge that med students take that a doctor should first do no harm to their patients. Danny is a doctor himself. He could agree that, yes, technically his father had brought harm to Eichmann, sedated him against his will. I, I told him, I understand the argument, but the Hippocratic Oath is, I mean, it's so unfitting for the situation. And I told him, Abba, this is not just any person. This is Eichmann we're talking about, a mass murderer, mass killer. But... That's, he, he was adamant about that. It seemed like his dad might have regretted his role in this historic mission. In the cafe, I asked Danny about that, about his dad's regret. He did not like that word. I just don't feel like he regretted it. Regret is just not the right word. Absolutely not. I never heard him say, I regret. He says the headline here is not doctor regretted his role in Eichmann capture. That would be unthinkable here. Israel is a country where everything is up for debate, except for Eichmann. There's no debate about Eichmann. And maybe there is something really uncomfortable about your father not only refusing to take credit for it, but thinking something about it was wrong. Hey, it's Mishi. We'll get back to the story in just a minute, but I wanted to make sure that you all know about our newsletter. Some of you, we recently learned, weren't even aware of the fact that we have one. Well, we do. And it's a great way to stay up to date. Want Israel's story delivered right to your inbox? Want special behind-the-scenes photos and staff recommendations? Want to be the first to know about our live shows and presentations and public talks? Go to israelstory.org slash newsletter and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Kotel HaMishpachot, the egalitarian Kotel. As you know, here at Israel Story, we've spent a lot of time this season thinking about the Kotel. And I can wholeheartedly recommend that next time you visit Jerusalem, you check out the egalitarian Kotel for Kabbalat Shabbat. You'll have the opportunity of welcoming in Shabbat at the most symbolic of Jewish locations, and doing so with a beautiful service, alongside your spouse, daughters, sons, granddaughters, grandsons. As the sun sets over Jerusalem, everyone is together, singing stunning melodies and partaking in a traditional service. The Tfilot at Robinson's Arch, on the southern end of the Kotel, take place at 6 p.m. during the summer and 4 p.m. during the winter. For more information, go to ezratisrael.com. That's E-Z-R-A-T-I-S-R-A-E-L.com. Okay, back to our story. In 2007, Danny's father, Yona, was invited to the Knesset for a special event honoring all those who participated in Eichmann's capture. But, true to himself, Yona refused to go. His son tried to persuade him to attend. And I really, really tried to convince him to do it, to go to the Knesset and receive this 
certificate, but to no avail. And of course, my father doesn't want anything to do with it. So Danny devised a plan. His daughter, Gali, had recently gone into the army. And Danny thought that maybe, in her olive green uniform, she might be able to push the old man's patriotic buttons. So I thought maybe I'll use the fact that she's a soldier and that'll somehow, you know, get him to agree to go. That didn't work either. He was steadfast in his refusal. So I told him, why don't you just let us accept the certificate for you? For some reason, that seemed like something Yona could stomach. Danny and his daughter went to the Knesset and represented the doctor. But when they received the commemoratory certificate on his behalf, they noticed something strange. It didn't have Yona's full name on it. Instead of Yona Elian, all it said was Dr. Aleph for Elian. Somehow, Yona had managed to keep his name off the books even at the official ceremony in the Knesset. This insistence to remain anonymous always seemed odd to Danny. But he was about to learn a much darker reason behind his father's silence. It all began when, one day, Yona received a weird phone call, out of the blue. Dr. Yona Elian? The guy on the other end of the line asked. Yes, Yona replied. You killed my father. I'd like to talk. All right, back to Gregory Warner and Daniel Estrin. To understand the origin of that strange phone call, and how it changed things between the doctor and his son, we should tell you about a 20-year hunt by one of Israel's most famous journalists for details about a different Mossad operation that turned out to have everything to do with Eichmann. The journalist is Ronen Berkman. The senior national security correspondent for Yediot Achronot and a staff writer for the New York Times magazine. His investigation centered on a secret safe in the Israeli government archives. And in that safe, they found a file which proved that something that was whispered as a sort of an urban legend throughout the years, something that nobody actually knew whether it's right or wrong, it's just a rumor, was in fact 100% right. So should I say briefly what the story is? Yes, tell me that story. This was actually the story of an Israeli army officer His name was Alexander Israel. And as the story goes, this Mr. Israel was desperate for money and turned against his country. In 1954, he flies out of Israel with a suitcase full of military secrets and offers to sell them to the Egyptian embassy in Rome. The Mossad wanted to get him. This is like the very first years of of Israel. The Mossad is this new intelligence agency, and the head of the Mossad realizes this is a great opportunity to prove ourselves, to prove what we can do. They decide to kidnap him and bring him back to Israel to stand trial, and they recruit a legendary anesthesiologist for the job, the magician, Dr. Aleph, Dr. Yona Elian. The Mossad's plan may sound very familiar. Young agency wants to prove itself by kidnapping someone overseas, sedating him, and bringing him to trial. That was Eichmann's story. But Eichmann had not happened yet. This was six years before that. And actually, this story is almost kind of an alternate version of the Eichmann story, in which everything that can go wrong does. 
This is not the Mossad that everyone has heard about. This is not a slick operation. It's an amateur job from the very beginning. The problem was to find him. And they didn't find him in Rome. So they dispatch Israeli students to go search for him in train stations across Europe. And it, it turned out to be just another fiasco because the, the police in, in two of these countries realized that something is going on. They finally find him by accident in Vienna. But it's not until they lure him to Paris that they manage to grab him. The doctor examines him, injects him with a sedative, and as he will do later with Eichmann, he boards with him on a plane to Israel. And this is where fiasco turns into catastrophe. Because when they land in Israel, the guy they were supposed to bring back to stand trial is dead. The doctor's drugs somehow killed him. And this is not only a failure of the mission. The Mossad at the time had a mandate. We do not kill Jews. The Mossad does not kill Jews. If these details get out, this will make the Mossad look really bad. There was by far less criticism. And there was a naive belief in the public that everything that these people are doing is good, right, and just. The Mossad chief orders the plane flown back up over the Mediterranean Sea, and the body is tossed out of the plane. They erase his name from the army records. The guy's wife and son are never told. The only civilian in Israel who knows firsthand about this cover-up is Dr. Yonah Elion, and he's ordered to keep quiet. Fifty years later, Ronen, the journalist, learns about that file in the safe and starts writing articles about this story. And that's when the doctor gets that phone call from the son of the guy who died on the airplane. And the doctor quickly gets off that call, and then he calls his own son. I get this phone call from my father. My father was really distraught. Tells me, listen, the son of this soldier just called me. He wants to meet with me. Do me a favor, you talk to him. So I call him up. And I told him, listen, my father's old. He doesn't want to revisit these things. He just doesn't want to. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really asking you to just let, let this be. Danny says he actually explained to this guy, look, my father doesn't talk to anybody. And this guy, you know, he's the son of an accused traitor. He's not going to push it. He said, well, if at some point later he wants to talk, let me know. So when I heard this, I called up this guy, the son of Alexander Israel. Hello. Hi, good morning. I wanted to know what it was like for him, this conversation between two sons, both struggling with the doctor's silence. You want to come here? So we made a plan to meet. Yeah, Monday uh, afternoon, late afternoon. Yeah, okay. But then he canceled. I called again, and his wife told me it was too sensitive. He just did not want to revisit this. Danny, the doctor's son, wanted to talk with his dad about this. But he wondered if his dad had refused to talk about his successful capture with Eichmann, how much less was he going to say about this botched operation where he'd failed the mission? So Danny waits for his moment, and he finds his father is actually willing to talk about what happened on that terrible airplane ride. He tells him they were in a Dakota airplane, which is a World War II cargo plane with propellers. It's unheated, it's freezing, and there's turbulence. So the cabin pressure is going up and down, and all of this affected how the sedative interacted with the patient. 
and that's why the man died. And this is not an emotional confession. This is more like two doctors discussing a case. But I know that this thing, like, that this, this story, this incident, really sat with my father. I mean, it really, really stayed with him. It wasn't long after that, Danny is over at his dad's house, and his dad tells him, wait here. And he goes into his room and comes back with a plastic bag with a needle inside and tells him, this is the needle I used to put Eichmann to sleep. And Danny says he never even knew his father had kept it. Hello. Hello. I went back to see Danny. So Dan just took out this, this silver box out of his briefcase, and he shows me the needle. Can I hold it? And it's really a striking object. Wow. It's made of metal. It's got a handle with a leather grip that scissors out like a switchblade. Oh, wow. And in my hand, the needle feels surprisingly small. He says, this is not a tiny thing at all. If you ask me, I'm a doctor, this is a big needle. It's unwieldy, it's hard to use, it's metal. And a metal needle can cause blood clots. But that's what he had. And on the baggie that the needle came in is a small sticker with a note that his father had written in English, wow. in this kind of shaky handwriting. Eichmann Needle. Danny is looking at this note. This is the only piece of his dad's handwriting he has left. It was only a few months after the doctor gave his son this needle that he killed himself, at home, alone in his house, and he left no note. Neither Danny nor his sister thinks his death had anything to do with Eichmann. They think he was getting old and frail and oppressed. I've struggled with this question, and I still wonder. It struck me that this gift of the needle was like a last will. Wow, it's like And he says, yes, could be. Danny looks at the label and he says, it's interesting because he didn't need the reminder, but he wrote it anyway. And to him, it means his father cared about this history being preserved. Maybe he didn't want his name or his voice associated with it, but he did think this object was worth saving. Danny and Miri, the doctor's children, they disagree about most things when it comes to their father. They disagree about whether talking more would have helped him and about how often he was gone when they were kids. They even disagree about which of them received this gift. Mary says it was her he gave it to, not her brother. But when he gave it, he left no instruction. It was up to them to decide what to do next. My brothers regarded this as a national treasure and said that this doesn't belong to us and brought it to the museum. He said that we owe it to the country to give it to, to the museum.
For Danny, this was his big chance to finally get his father in the history books. He got the needle photographed in the newspaper. He called up museums to find a home for it. And eventually, Avner, the museum guy at the Mossad, found him. I called uh, Danny. He gave me the, the needle for the exhibit. And that's where I saw the needle for the first time, in that Tel Aviv exhibit, under glass. There's just something so physical about it and intimate. And you imagine that thing in Eichmann's arm. And that was the object that made me want to learn the story of this doctor and find out who he was and, and what he went through. But if you go to that exhibit today, you're not going to see that needle. After a year, he took it from me. I'd be happy to take the needle back and put it in the exhibit. And I also offered him to honor his father and put his name in, uh, in the intelligence, uh, in the Israeli intelligence center. But he didn't cooperate. Danny decided that this needle did not belong with the Mossad's traveling show. And in this respect, he came around to his sister's point of view. Their father gave them this needle. He did not give them a story to go with it. It was a, a, a significant needle for him. I think it meant something to him without expressing what it was. On my last meeting, I asked Danny what the needle now means to him. Danny told me the needle is an important part of this story, but it does not replace the stories, the revelations, the confessions that never were. In a way, this needle it connects these two stories in the doctor's life, six years apart, where he did the exact same job for his country, injected a wanted man in a plane with such different results. In one, he was glorified in a national triumph. In the other, made complicit in a government cover-up. In one, he was asked to be a hero. In the other, a ghost. So his son decided in the end that the right place for this needle was where his dad kept it, in a drawer. Stay in the family. He's going to pass it on to his kids, and then it'll be on them to decide what to do with the legacy. Gregory Warner and Daniel Estrin. Yona Elian died in 2011, at the age of 88. He's buried in Kineret, next to the Sea of Galilee. That story was produced by the Rough Translation team. Gregory Warner, Jess Jang, Mitchell Johnson, Neil Carruth, Will Dobson, Anya Grundman, Sarah Knight, Andy Uther, John Ellis, Matt Orton, and Autumn Barnes. It was edited by Marianne McCune, who also scored the piece, together with Mike Cruz. Thanks to Larry Kaplow, NPR's Middle East editor, and to Karen Duffin, Quill Lawrence, Anne Hepperman, Alex Goldmark, Sana Krasikov, and Yochai Meital. You can find the wonderful Rough Translation podcast, which I really can't recommend enough, on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you find your podcasts. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And there's something really simple you can do right now that will make a big difference. 
in order to continue bringing you the show for free, we need to reach more people. And in the Apple-centric world in which we live, the best way to accomplish that is to have many reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts. So if you like our show, go to Apple Podcasts, give us those five shiny stars, and write a rave review. It's easy, and it works. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Scarlett DeGene, Paul Alem, Yair Farkas, Harry Sultan, Rebecca Carroll, Kayla Levy, James Fader, and Niva Ashkenazi have been our wonderful production interns this year. As always, the one and only Sela Weisblum mixed the episode. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. And it hit me as a Jew. Gas doesn't just belong to us. So, till next time, Shalom Shalom, and Yalla Bye!
שתמיד לאן לחזור 